Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly Phillips-Zerb, for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. A lot of folks have heard the word bankruptcy, but not everyone knows what it means. Basically, it refers to a legal process of obtaining debt relief for those who are unable to repay their obligations. And while we hear a lot about corporate bankruptcies, the majority of bankruptcy filings are actually by individuals. And about half of all bankruptcies in the United States are currently related to medical illnesses, injuries, or expenses not covered by insurance. But other reasons might include losing your job, experiencing a divorce, and of course, simply taking on too much debt. The average bankruptcy filer is older and married, has a high school education, and makes less than $30,000 a year. There is this notion that if you're in any kind of debt, from student loans to tax debts, that you can discharge those in bankruptcy, and that's not necessarily true. You're probably getting the sense that these rules are complicated, and they are. So to help us sort them out, I've asked Celine Major Kramer to the show. Celine is a business lawyer consultant at Bernstein Berkeley in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She has practiced corporate law and commercial bankruptcy for firms both large and small since 2000. Thanks, Celine, so much for being on the show. Hi, Kelly. So right out of the gate, I mentioned that folks may think that they know a little something about bankruptcy, but maybe they don't know what it really is. So can you kind of give us a nutshell explanation of what a bankruptcy actually is? Sure. The word bankruptcy, a lot of people, a lot of my clients that come in the door that are so stressed out about the debts that they owe, they just have such a negative connotation with the word bankruptcy. And it's sort of like the last place and the last thing that they possibly would want to be doing. But I find this work to be super rewarding for me, particularly because the bankruptcy code was drafted to enable people to to help them have a fresh start in their life Mm -hmm. from a financial perspective. And I focus on businesses. So a bankruptcy, Congress has enacted the code to help people that for whatever reason, they've had to file bankruptcy and they cannot pay their debts so that they can have a fresh start with their own personal life or with their business. So it's, it's a privilege for me to do this work. I do do, I mostly represent debtors, but I also, my firm represents a lot of creditors in a case who are owed money. And they need a way to figure out how, if they're ever going to get paid back or what their rights are in a case. But I encourage people that it's not the, the end of your business necessarily. The kind of work I specialize in, Kelly, is, is reorganization. So it's not necessarily the death of the business, but a restructuring of the debts and a reorganization so that that business owner and that business can, can um, survive whatever crisis has come their way and, and move on. And I don't think a lot of people understand that reorganization is an option. I think when people hear bankruptcy, they think that it is you draw a line in the sand and you say, I can't pay these. And there's like a magic wand and it goes away. Yeah. And that's not the case. And when you talk about businesses in particular, I think that people are concerned because when you when you think about personal bankruptcy, we all know that that you're entitled to keep some stuff, right? So you're entitled mm-hmm. typically That's to keep right. your house and your car and that kind of thing. I think mm-hmm. with businesses, people don't understand 
that they might be able to keep some stuff, right? I think that they think, as you mentioned, that the business is over. So kind of how does that work? And obviously, there's lots of different ways to declare bankruptcy, and it depends on the situation of the particular Mm -hmm. business. But generally, like, what does it mean to reorganize? If if I'm a business and I'm sinking and I come to you and I say, help, kind of what are the things that you're going to ask me to, to, to determine what our next steps would be? So part of my analysis when anyone walks in the door, whether it's an individual or a business, is what are the non-bankruptcy alternatives mm-hmm. that we can turn to before we would incur the cost of filing a case? Because particularly for businesses, it can be a very, very expensive endeavor. Okay. So there are several different chapters. Um, let's just say for the business, Kelly. So there's a chapter seven, which is a liquidation and closure of the company, an orderly liquidation. There's a chapter 11, which is the reorganization restructuring. And in any re- chapter 11 case, the objective of the case is to file a plan of reorganization, which is a contract with your creditors to, for that plan of paying back your debts as a business, according to a certain pecking order as dictated by the bankruptcy code. Over a usually it's a five to seven year period. Okay. So it can be a very beautiful thing for a business because you can reject certain agreements and contracts that you have that are not profitable. You can sell off assets that in order to to raise the funds to pay back certain creditors to to, to fund the plan. Usually there's a pot of money to pay um, general unsecured creditors. Okay. And those that pot of money is distributed pro rata, and there's a certain percentage recovery. It can be anywhere from less than a penny on the dollar to 100 cents on the dollar. So we use the code and all the privileges of the filing to to really streamline the balance sheet for a business. So again, selling off assets that you don't want, restructuring and modifying liabilities. Perhaps it's changing the interest rate on on the debt, asking the creditor to take a haircut asking the debtor for a longer repayment period. There's also a concept of uh, lien stripping. So mm-hmm. if a creditor is undersecured, say they, they're secured by a building for hundred that is worth $100,000, but they're owed $200,000, you can bifurcate their claim into secured and unsecured so that over that five-year period, you're just paying back on the secured portion. And on the unsecured portion, you're, they fall into that general unsecured class that gets, say, two cents on the dollar for the unsecured creditor claim. That's very technical, but there's all these maneuvers you can make, particularly with respect to unsecured creditors. It's like credit card companies, right. anything that's not secured. It can be a wonderful thing to sort of try to preserve your relationships with your critical vendors. I feel like a lot of creditors, they, as long as everybody else is being treated the same, and there's some hope of a recovery. A lot of times there is there is cooperation in the plan because creditors do get to vote. And in a Chapter 11 case, you, you file this plan of reorganization along with a disclosure statement about what is in that plan and why you filed bankruptcy and what your plans are for emerging out of the case. What does your business model look like on a going forward basis? And then the creditors get to vote and you have to meet certain uh, numerosity, you know, number of creditors in a certain class a certain dollar amount, um, you have to exceed in terms of getting approval for the, the plan. Right. It sounds like that there's a lot of advantages for someone who's who has uh, unsecured credit. Is there somebody who is um, 
considered maybe like an ideal candidate for bankruptcy, especially like on the small business or business side? Like who would be an ideal candidate? So as I was saying before, clients come to me, there's usually a catastrophic event. Like let's say the CEO got into a car accident and is no longer able to manage the firm. Like now with a pandemic, I mean, it is a catastrophic event across the board and a drastic revenue reduction for businesses. Sometimes there's lawsuits that have been filed. A lot of times the lawsuit is the catalyst for a chapter 11 filing because a business has been filed. Let's say it's some kind of litigation. Maybe there was a personal injury on the premises. Now they're being tagged for a couple million dollar lawsuit. There's no way they're going to be able to pay. Or uh, usually a lot, most often it's a bank default, a business borrowed money that's secured by a traditional lending source and they're in default, they're in arrearages. They've tried everything they can to work it out with the bank with forbearance agreements, mm-hmm. some other non-bankruptcy option for a workout. Um, and the bank, for whatever reason, isn't willing to work with them. Often there's taxes involved as well, of course. Yes. So for a business sales tax, payroll taxes, income taxes. And they're so far behind. Often the IRS agent will have seized bank accounts for the business. Right. Like say they have a payroll bank account, they seize that and they freeze it. And now the company cannot pay their employees. It's usually something like that. Or like a landlord, say they can't pay their rent and the landlord, they're way behind. The landlord locks the premises so, and then they come to me at the 11th hour and say, what do I do now? Or, or like the, the bank is trying to sell the building out of which they operate and they've issued a notice of foreclosure and we file the bankruptcy on, you know, two hours before the foreclosure sale. And that's where uh, you're waiting till the 11th hour. That's not the best way to approach a case. Sure. The best way to approach a case is to plan well in advance, try to work out with your creditors what is going to be the plan of reorganization before you even file to reduce the kind of adversarial uh, proceedings that might ensue after you file the case, try to, it's called a consensual prepackaged bankruptcy plan. Mm -hmm. That's the ideal case where you've worked out with those creditors, what perhaps their treatment could be. A lot of times it's such an adverse situation and there's not going to be any relief. There's not enough money to go around for whatever creditors has come a knocking Mm-hmm. So then it compels the business to file the, the chapter 11 case, which effectively is the automatic stay is automatic the minute that I would press the button to electronically file the bankruptcy petition. And it does give quite a bit of re- breathing room to whether it's an individual or a person, uh, a business to figure out, well, what do I do now? How am I going to pay these people back? What assets can I save? How can I protect my employees and my people? So it's a pretty powerful tool. Well, when you mentioned taxes, that's an example of of something that in some cases, taxes can be discharged. And then there are other kinds of taxes that cannot be. So you mentioned payroll taxes, certain kinds of payroll taxes cannot be, um, Mm -hmm. certain kinds of fraud penalties can't be, but Mm -hmm. income tax can be. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because I do think a lot of people think of bankruptcy, as I, I kind of alluded to earlier, as kind of an all or nothing, but that's not the yeah, case. So that's right. What is the quick and dirty explanation of what kinds of things may be forgiven or negotiated versus things that can't like, obviously, yeah. we don't have time for a laundry list. But just generally, like, 
you mentioned yeah. secured versus not secured. Like what are some of the kind of the, the, the rules for what is dischargeable and what is not? Yeah. Let's talk about the tax issue because for businesses, it's usually present in every single case because when cash, cash is king and cash dries up, then you're looking for shortcuts. So a lot of time, business owners will not pay the employer portion of their payroll taxes because on the on the employee's paycheck, they don't know that the employer hasn't paid in their the employer portion, mm-hmm. and that's a real. Those are trust fund taxes. Those are the kind that will not be discharged, right? Like ever. And right. there's personal liability for anyone, like the bookkeeper or the CFO or any officer that is aware that they have not been paid. Those are the ones that you want to make sure get paid. So the uh, trust fund tax is, again, never dischargeable. Maybe the interests and the penalties, depending on if the taxing body has indeed filed a lien um, and ha- is attaching to property that has equity in it. Mm-hmm. Those are issues that you drill down into and say, well, uh, maybe they'll take a haircut on the penalty and interest. Income taxes that are older than three years after... Um, and there's you know, certain nuances and certain exceptions, depending upon if like, perhaps if you were in an installment arrangement agreement or an offer and compromise agreement with the IRS, and that, that can toll that three-year look back, mm-hmm. um, even the filing of the case that can toll the three-year look back. But let's just say generally, income taxes that are older than three years can be discharged. And those taxes become a general unsecured claim in the case, mm-hmm. and they would reap whatever recovery they would get as a general unsecured creditor in that particular case. Right. And one of the things I think people don't know is that you do have to continue to file even while all this process is going on. That's kind of part of the deal. Like even if the returns are going to, even if the obligations are going to be discharged, kind of part of the deal with the service is that you have to continue to file your returns. Yeah. I mean, that's, if you have not filed your returns and your bookkeeping is, is poor, and there's years and years that you haven't filed or it's messy. Number one, that you have to, if you're filing a bankruptcy case and it's coming to light that, you know, basically when you do file a chapter 11 case, it's kind of a financial autopsy in the bankruptcy schedules and the petition of what the assets and liabilities, the income and expenses of a business are mm-hmm. for the public to see. And the U.S. trustee's office, without a doubt, they want to make sure that your assets are insured and that you have in fact paid, filed your taxes. Right. And the income taxes on a going forward basis, if you're going to confirm a plan and work out a deal with taxing bodies, they want you to be current post-petition. Right. So they want to make sure maybe pre-petition, that, that filing date of that petition is a key date in the case. So they look at pre versus post. So you've got to find a way to figure out your cash flow to make sure that those post-petition taxes, even the estimated ones that aren't actually due, but there's estimated taxes due, they're going to want to see that paid as well. But it is a very, very powerful tool, Kelly, for businesses because, I mean, I've seen businesses facing a million dollars of tax liability and the taxing bodies want to see these businesses survive. They want the business owners to keep their homes. They want to work with the parties to keep the business going, to keep people employed. And it's been a real um, privilege for me to step into that kind of a situation because prior to the bankruptcy filing, a lot of times it, it, you feel the, the business feels like their, their, their pleas are falling on deaf ears. But then once the case is filed and a judge is overseeing the case and the creditors in the case and their good faith efforts towards a resolution, 
and keeping people employed and keeping a business at play, it does have a lot of um, weight and, and uh, it's a lot of power for a judge to, to be over overseeing as well as the United States trustee. Well, you mentioned trustee a couple of times now. Can you explain yeah. to folks what a trustee is and what they do? Because I know that this is something that uh, you kind of hear uh, peppered in these conversations, but not everybody knows. And I think trustee, especially is kind of a loaded term, like people think there's a trust document and, you know, it's a little different. So what is a trustee? Yeah, do? sure. So it is confusing because in a chat, let's say a chapter 11 case, there are, there is a, a trustee appointed by the United States Department of Justice in every single case, whether it's a chapter seven or chapter 11 or 13 or whatever. And they oversee whether you, you've, the person has properly filed their, their, all the documents necessary for the case, their, their schedules, their bankruptcy petition. And you actually have a meeting here. It's called a 341 meeting of creditors. It's conducted by the, the trustee in the case, the U.S. trustee in the case. And they ask you questions under oath about the accuracy of the information you've provided. And that gives creditors an opportunity to show up and ask questions about their own particular debt and what's going um, on in the future with respect to the plan of the case and what's the likelihood of recovery. So that's from a panel of trustees. But then in a chapter seven case, that's a liquidation case for an individual. That is a kind of case where, but for certain debts that are not dischargeable, like student loan debt and certain tax debt, a chapter seven trustee is appointed. They step in the shoes of whether it's the business or the individual and they liquidate the assets that are not exempt. Okay. So they, it's their, they step in the shoes. Management loses its authority to have control over the affairs of the liquidation. And this trustee come, is involved and they're charged with recovering as much as they can for the bankruptcy estate to distribute to creditors. They are compensated. It's, it's based on a percentage of what they recover. So, and they can file lawsuits on behalf of the estate if they think that certain assets were fraudulently transferred out. They can file them to pull them back in in a lawsuit adversary. They're called avoidance actions. So that's that's a chapter seven trustee. In a chapter seven trustee, it's usually that same person that I was talking to that is running the three forty one meeting of creditors. It's it's the same person. So in the chapter eleven. There is a notion of actually appointing a trustee if there's some kind of fraud or mismanagement. So it's a trustee in addition to the United States trustee. Okay. It's usually it's an examiner or a trustee, it's a chapter 11 trustee, and they oust management. It's an extraordinary remedy. And it's usually only, you know, for a business, let's, let's say that's ongoing and you're basically revoking um, management from all of their duties and another person is appointed and they hire their own lawyers and they basically run the case from there. Okay. I know it sounds a little bit convoluted, but hopefully did you follow what I was saying? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So okay. I have a question about kind of process. So you mentioned that you kind of walked us through, you know, you filed the petition, they have the meetings of creditors, depending on which chapter and, and what's dischargeable and what's not. And then mm-hmm. ostensibly at some point, there's, there's an end where there's a good result. Yeah. What happens, because I've actually seen this with some of my clients where there have been, and I, I get, get it after the fact, where a bankruptcy starts but doesn't finish. Why, why might that happen? Likelihood of success of the bankruptcy 
is uh, 25%. So one out of four of them actually survive and are confirmed and the business goes on its merry way. It's challenging to try to get the case confirmed. So one of the things I didn't mention with talking about different chapters and different types of cases, there is a new chapter 11 for small businesses. It's uh, the Small Business Reorganization Act. It was just became effective in February and it's kind of like a fast track chapter 11. And it was enacted to make filing a chapter 11 more affordable for small businesses. Okay. So, and I'm actually doing a presentation on that in a month. I'm always happy to come back and we can talk about that in depth about oh, great. what that is. But the cost of filing a case and paying professionals, I mean, it could be anywhere. People ask me for a small business, this isn't like a mega case. I'm talking about a business that assets under 5 million mm-hmm. liabilities, anywhere from five to 10 million, small, small cases. The legal fees can be anywhere from 5,000 a month to 15 to 20,000 a month, depending upon who's fighting you. If you have a bank that's fighting your every move and won't work with you or a landlord, it can be very adversarial. Uh, So that's one of the reasons cases fail. Another reason is no, no likelihood of reorganization. Usually the average case is between 12 to 18 months from filing the petition to to actually getting a plan filed and confirmed and having some kind of strategy mm-hmm. for exit. So the exit plan can be a sale of assets, a sale of substantially all the assets in an auction kind of setting. It's called a 363 sale. That's been, a, it's a really successful, it's, it's a sale free and clear of all liens on those assets. So an auction process ensues and there are competitive bidding. And it's a great way to reorganize and get a company either you know, under a new name, but still operating. Um, like Sears just did that. They sold 426 of their stores to a new entity in a 363 sale. Other chapter 11s involve perhaps a bond issuance, perhaps additional financing, debtor in possession financing, mm-hmm. where someone's actually, you pay, you pay more money for the financing. So it's like the interest rate on, on that kind of debt is high because it's a risky situation. But there's numerous ways that you can go down a path for um, a reorganization. And just sometimes time is of the essence. Sometimes the business is like a melting ice cube. There's, uh, you know, if there's perhaps they've lost a key contract or they've got perishable inventory. Sometimes you just can't get it done as quickly as you need it to get done. And so it never gets confirmed. The business goes under. It can convert to um, from an 11 to a 7 liquidation and um, be or, or dismissed altogether. Well, when you mentioned Sears, I think that's actually something that maybe listeners are interested in because we've seen actually a lot of high profile, I think Pier 1 as well. There's been a lot of kind of high profile going out of business type headlines. So in those cases, what I think that a, a lot of people did not understand is that you do have this opportunity to keep going. And that's something you mentioned at the beginning. Like this is a lot of times about the best way to kind of get a fresh start. When that happens, are there any restrictions on those companies moving forward? Or is it actually once the bankruptcy is finalized, they're free to continue? Like is there, are there restrictions? Yeah, so basically in like with the sale to transform, there's an asset purchase agreement, just like out of out of bankruptcy, would be negotiated by both parties about what that new 
entity, we called it NUCO or whatever, was assuming? What kind of liabilities was it assuming? What stores would it retain? Would it use the same employees? And some of the agreements, like I, I represented an e-marketplace seller, several of them in that case, who supplied goods online to Sears.com. They fulfilled the orders. So they were a significant creditor in the case. And they had an agreement with Sears prior to them filing the case. And we wanted to know, is Sears going to, it's, it's called assumption or rejection of our, our agreement. Mm-hmm. Are they going to assume it? Is Transform going to assume it and continue to do business with us? And in bankruptcy, there's a protection under 365 of the bankruptcy code for people doing business with a debtor that if your agreement is assumed, then then either the debtor or in this case, it was Transform because Transform was going to buy that agreement and buy those assets. Mm-hmm. Was Transform going to assume the agreement? Whoever assumes it, there's an obligation to cure arrearages. Okay. In my situation, the arrearages was about $700,000. So there's those, those are hiccups in any kind of sale transaction is, is, is this new buyer going to assume or reject my agreement? What's going to happen with my business? Mm-hmm. So, but no, I mean, for people, it's a great market, uh, the dis- distressed industry for people that are looking for a, a deal for a business. I mean, I know there's people that, you know, obviously specialize in that kind of a distressed sale mm-hmm. and it can be a great way to get assets for way less than uh, fair market value, for sure. And we hear sometimes about this in the news, but is it is it possible to be a repeat bankruptcy person? I mean, I think yeah. sometimes a lot of stuff is made of that. Is is that possible? And does the trustee yeah. then look at them a little differently? Yeah, sure. So I've read several articles on retail cases because um, that has been one of my industry focuses along with restaurants. And I've written a particular article on, it's called Chapter 22. When you file a chapter 11 case as a business and then, and you've got a plan of reorganization, but then one thing or another happens and you're not able to satisfy the terms of that plan of reorganization over that five-year period mm-hmm. and you're defaulting on the plan. So then it throws you back into bankruptcy to go back to the judge and say, hey, we need to rework these terms because we can't, we cannot comply with them. So gotcha. that's called a chapter 22. And it's, and I'm happy, I, I'd love to email you that article. And I focused on retail and what, why did some of these retailers file more than once? What went awry? Yeah, no, if you could send that, we can put that in the show notes. I think that would be really fascinating for folks. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I think this, as that applies to people and sometimes small business owners, I think there's this notion that you use bankruptcy, you know, especially if you use it more than once, that you're using it to kind of, um, maybe take advantage of the system. I get this a lot mm-hmm. too on the tax side. People get very angry when they hear about people who've done offers and compromise because they're like, yeah. how dare that person get a break because I paid my full bore, right? So like, yeah. how do how do you, like, what kind of advice or, or conversation would you offer to folks listening who feel like this isn't fair? Because I, I get the same thing on the tax side. Like, why is it fair that this business doesn't have to pay its debts when I have to pay mine? Yeah, I hear you. So if, if a case is filed, and, and certainly there are cases that the principals are repeat filers for all of their different business entities. They fraudulently transfer assets to and fro. 
they can, and I'm objecting to several cases right now. I filed motions to dismiss, I represent the creditor, for um, an abuse of the bankruptcy process. Okay. I felt like the filing, there's a standard in 1102 of the bankruptcy code for grounds for dismissal. And if, if someone is abusing the system, it's just not going to fly. The U.S. trustee won't allow the case to go forward and the creditors are going to be angry. So they'll file motions to dismiss. One of the things I, I was alluding to earlier, the bankruptcy for a business though, and you're like, well, when, when does it make sense to file a bankruptcy? Sometimes there's those events like a, you know, locking of a door, but, or a freezing of a bank account or something like that. But then sometimes there's just too many creditors that you're fighting with that you need to wrap it all up in one proceeding. Mm-hmm. And particularly with like, um, like I, Maxim Crane case was one, it was filed in Pittsburgh. I had the privilege of working on it when I was a younger lawyer um, in 2003. There were, I think, seven, 7,000 claims filed by creditors in that case. It was the 10th wow. largest bankruptcy case in the country at the time. And we, it's called a claims objection process, a claims adjudication process. And you can quickly, that's the one of the blessings of bankruptcy court is you can get a proceeding is not going to drag on and on and on for years because the judge won't have it. See, if somebody, you file a claim in the case, the debtor objects to the claim. You guys dispute on like, hey, he owed me money, but then you didn't give me so-and-so goods. You can quickly resolve that dispute without additional litigation. But sometimes it does lead to more litigation, mm-hmm. but it's a really efficient way to resolve multiple disputes with multiple parties. Gotcha. So I, I wanted to... Um, highlight that. And then also like for these retailers, they're, they're reformulating their business model and getting rid of, as I I alluded to, that power to reject leases. Mm -hmm. And then you're not slammed with a breach of contract lawsuit. That person on the other end literally is limited to an unsecured claim for it's called rejection damages. So they just get that pot in that general, they share with the general unsecured creditors, but then you get to reject that lease. You're out of that. And you can move forward. And a lot of the retailers, they're rejecting shopping center leases. That's what happened. And it's called the retail apocalypse with so many of these retailers with the advent of uh, online sales and Mm -hmm. then really trying to figure out which locations are profitable for them and which ones aren't and shedding themselves of those leases. Gotcha. So, yeah. Yeah. So if, if a small business is struggling and they're is there a line? Is there like a number? Is it, do you look at and say, cause you know, you've mentioned that it can be expensive. You've also mentioned that there are ways to, um, to mitigate that a little bit now with the, with the new chapter 11 filing. But if, if a business yeah. is looking, is it, is it the point at which your debt is greater than your asset? It's, is there a, a line where your, your income is below? Like, is there a line where you can look and you're like, okay, now I need to call somebody. Cause I think that's what everybody has a bad quarter, right? Everybody has a yeah. bad, I mean, no business is is doing beautifully all of the time. There's always a, a quarter or something, whether it's because you've had to let somebody go that was, you know, important to the business. So like you mentioned before, like with the CEO, or if something just happens, there's always a moment where, yeah. where things are bad. And, and it's hard because I think you also, you know, you you mentioned the beginning, you don't want to wait too late either, right? Because then, yeah. then you have a mess. So like, what should be the the trigger or the the moment where you're like, okay, I should call somebody because this isn't working and I need help. And how do you know that that person should be a bankruptcy lawyer? Yeah. 
A lot of the cases that I filed, Kelly, because I have my own firm. So I've got a lot of the small cases, small business cases. And when a clients come in the door at this point, they have a lot of them, small business owners, they personally guaranteed the, the, the debt with the bank, the landlord debt. They've dipped into all, they haven't paid themselves in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And their whole family's suffering because they, they're not drawing money out of the business anymore. Right. Also deplete their retirement assets, which I would, unless it's a really unique circumstance, I would strongly advise against that because retirement assets generally are always bankruptcy exempt. Even if you have $500,000 in a four uh, and, um, and an IRA, mm-hmm. no creditor can come after that. But then like the business owner doing everything they possibly can to avoid a bankruptcy filing, they'll deplete that sure. and they'll deplete everything they have, which is a huge mistake because they could file personally if they had to. And that would be assets that are protected. Things like that, you see just where they're not able to pay the taxes, that if they're not paying payroll taxes, if they're incurring all this personal liability and, and risking um, just to save a business that isn't working, mm-hmm. that's um, really time to call a bankruptcy lawyer for sure. And especially it's interesting that you mentioned because uh, retirement assets can sometimes be subject to um, to repayment on the tax side, but it is something that I tell people, like, don't pull it out because often when you pull out those, those retirement funds, then you're creating a bigger tax problem as well. So yeah, you're actually making the sure. problem worse. Um, and it's also yeah. interesting because when you mentioned the, the payroll taxes and the sales tax and, and other things, thing that I see on small businesses is when they can't pay those and they're dipping into funds they shouldn't, they don't always rec- recognize that that can also lead to criminal um, charges. Yeah. You know, this is yeah. a situation where taking the wrong from the wrong pot actually can have serious consequences as opposed to, you know, just purely financial consequences. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I know we mostly talked about uh, small businesses, but I want to talk about individuals for like a minute or two kind of as a wrap up. Yeah. On the personal side, and I know, again, most of your your work is with corporations, but on the personal side, do you have any kind of similar lines for people? Like when should, if someone is struggling, especially now because mm-hmm. of the pandemic and people are out of work and yeah. unemployment is ending, like, is there any advice in terms of when a bankruptcy would make sense for an individual? And, and we did kind of mention at the top of the program that some tax debt and some a lot of student loans are not dischargeable, but is there any kind of a ideal scenario for where if, a, if an individual is struggling, they might seek out a bankruptcy attorney? Sure. And I've, I've filed several, several consumer cases. And when someone comes to me, I look at the amount of debt that they have, and it's usually credit card debt, medical debt. Mm-hmm. And what is their income? And will they ever be able to pay it back? And over what period of time? Okay. And what's their likelihood of their income increasing? Can they, have they attempted to negotiate these debts? A lot of times, especially now, these credit card companies are willing to, to take giant haircuts. Okay. And I mean, I don't, I don't typically, sometimes I get into that, but they'll take, it's worth a while to tell the story and to tell them what's exactly going on. Mm -hmm. But you have to be realistic given the person's age. Do they already own a home and a car and a bankruptcy filing isn't going to hinder their ability to get one in the future? I mean, you can still get one eventually. I think 
my mortgage broker said three years after the, the filing of a bankruptcy case, you can get another mortgage, but it's all, you have to ask your own broker, but sure. Even like with credit cards, but it's all of those factors. Sometimes if it's husband and wife, maybe I, I would just have the, you know, one spouse file if that helps the situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's really for a chapter seven case, Kelly, it's, it's not anything to be super afraid of. I mean, there, they are, it is kind of simple. You don't even have to go in front of a, a judge. You just go to that 341 meeting of creditors and the trustee asks you about your assets and liabilities. And if you're out of work because job loss, I mean, particularly now, it's not something to be really ashamed of. It's there to help people get back on their feet. That's what it's there for. You know, it's, it's every, so many people are in the same boat right now, but before they would, we would even file something like that. I would say, have you exhausted all efforts to negotiate with your landlord? Ask for a forbearance Mm -hmm. for your home mortgage. You can do home mortgage modifications. And there's a chapter 13 too, for individuals. It's all based on your income level. Mm -hmm. So if each state has a medium level of income, and you have to show it's income means test that you have to pass in order to qualify for the seven, which is the one that you would want so that all those debts are discharged and you don't have to pay them back, except for the ones that are non-dischargeable as we alluded to earlier. Right. But if it's a 13, they look at the amount of, if you make over, like, let's say in Pennsylvania, I think the, and it, it, it's a function of the average income and how many people are in your household, but let's say it's like $60,000. They'll look at your disposable income over a 60-month period in a Chapter 13 plan and come up with the amount of money you have to pay people back over the 60 months Mm -hmm. if you make over the $60,000. Gotcha. So I've never actually done one of those, but it's definitely an option too and, you know, gets people on their merry way. Right. Well, and one of the things that you did mention, I just want to reiterate, it's something that we talked about on the program recently is that, you know, folks are often scared to ask for help. And there are, there are mechanisms in place to help people, whether it is an offering compromise or an installment agreement on the tax side or a bankruptcy. So people shouldn't be afraid to ask the questions. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's, with what I deal with, it's, it's a business situation there and, or, or a medical situation or something like something completely outside of your control. Right. And you shouldn't be ashamed to call a bankruptcy lawyer. I mean, we're here to help. I, I, it's been, I've been doing it 20 some years. It's, I really enjoy the practice and it can really help people just move on. I wrote a blog post about this to help them move on to the next right thing for themselves and their family. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's why Congress enacted it. And that's why it's there. That's awesome. Well, if folks want to find you, if they want to find some of these articles and, and find you on social, where should they look? They can call me and they can text me anytime. It's 412-427-427. 7075. That's my cell phone. If I don't answer right away or text right a bit away, I will eventually. My email is skramer, K-R-A-E-M-E-R at Bernstein, B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N law.com. And I have a blog, Kelly, it's called In Playing English. Mm -hmm. And another one is called Steel Valley Bankruptcy, which I just write about bankruptcy specific stuff. And um, all of that can be found on my LinkedIn profile under Celine Mazer Kramer, S-A-L-E-N-E, Mazer, M-A-Z-U-R, Kramer, K-R-A-E-M-E-R. It's been a real privilege talking to you. I know what's going on with the pandemic. It's absolutely devastating. I see it on the front lines 
for businesses and individuals. And I am here to help. I, it's, 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 uh, this is what I've been doing is working in distress situations. And it's just been, if I can help in some way, I will help with people's finances. So don't hesitate to, to call me ever. Uh, I'll be a sounding board or to have any of your constituents do the same. Thank you. And we're going to put all of this info also, if you guys didn't catch those exact uh, spellings and, and numbers, there'll be all of the show notes for folks to, uh, to refer to. Thanks again, Celine, for being on the program. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Tax Girl, and you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.